Hey everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Happiness and Humans. I'm your host, Matt Phelan. I'm a co-founder of the Happiness Index, and I'm here with the amazing Carolyn Hobday. How are you doing, Carolyn? I'm very good, thank you, Matt. We were just having a very long conversation about how nobody can pronounce our surnames, so I hope that I hope that I got yours right. <laughs> yeah, spot on. Um, Carolyn, please introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, so I'm Carolyn and um, I am a reformed HR director. Uh, so that's what I used to do in the corporate world for over 20 years. Uh, I'm now an author, a public speaker and an expert in transformational change. Carolyn, you have to tell our listeners the name of your first book. I do. It was called <laughs> All the Twats I Met Along the Way. <laughs> we're going to come back to that i want to know about that book i just want i just it, i just love it it's the i just wish that i could name i had somehow yeah it's just when you hit when i read it i was when i read that name i was like oh, i just wish i'd come up with that name at some point and <laughs> um, i want to come back to that but before we do what what makes you happy i'm hoping you're going to say non-twat that's what i'm hoping but <laughs> i can't put words into your mouth so what, what makes you happy carolyn um I, I was, I'm genuinely going to say actually, I like positivity. Um, so I think that there's a slight difference between positivity and happiness. Um, so positivity is about having the confidence and the tools that you can deal with the bad days as well as the good days. So knowing that you sort of have those resources and um, for me, it took a long time for me to learn, um, you know, what those resources were. But I think positivity is then what makes me happy, because even on a bad day, I know that I'll get through it and I can come back to the good ones, which are the ones that make me really happy. I love that. Um, Carolyn, I, I read the other day the difference between confidence and arrogance. Um, and I felt like it was a really good thing to share because when sometimes when people are confident, they're accused of ar arrogance and, and maybe the other way around. But it said it, it was a really good it said people. Confidence is believing in yourself, which we know and we're going to go on to talk about that, I think, a bit later. Um, arrogance is when you tell other people you're better than them. And I thought this is such a really good distinction, isn't it? Because some yeah. people struggle with confidence because they don't want to appear arrogant. Yeah. Um, and, and, and there's the flips on it. Uh, we hadn't planned to talk about that. Any, any, does that ring any bells in your head on the sort of stuff you've worked on? It, it does massively, actually. Um, I'm writing about it in the moment. Um, so I'm busy writing my, my second book, which, again, we'll, we'll come back to. But um, I'm actually talking at the moment about confidence um, in that. Mm. And it's really interesting. And I, I really hate getting into the sort of male-female you know, debates and certainly, you know, never would want to pit them against each other. But I think it's really interesting how society views confidence differently in men than it does in women. Yeah. Um, I think very much, you know, we sort of celebrate and welcome confidence in men, which I think in itself puts a lot of pressure on men because they need to sort of seem to appear to be confident and charismatic. And sometimes mm. that's absolutely not how they feel. Um, so I think that's a pressure in its own right. I think confidence then in women is very much seen as a kind of negative trait. You know, you are seen as arrogant or up yourself or mm. over assertive, which is then becomes like aggressive um, in a woman. So I, I think it's a really it's a really fine line to tread. But when I work with people, uh, you know, my clients with regards to confidence, it's very much just about owning your patch of the world. And I talk about it in relation to competence, actually. Um, mm. Let's not focus on confidence. Let's focus on competence. And when you have that belief, so it comes back to your definition, when you have that self-belief, 
then you can have that sort of in a very internal, um, strong core way, um, rather than necessarily having to be out there and, and sort of exuding this confidence that tends to have a bit more of a negative con- connotation, like you say, becomes arrogance. I think there's a for, for our listeners, there's an episode if people scroll back by Shireen Daniels on the on the tag because she talks about the one area where it's on gender where it's slightly different. She talks about the when people are, when black women are called strong black women um, and the negative impact of that by being assumed that what all that comes with it and not being able to be vulnerable and stuff like that. So I'd recommend people scroll back and have and have a listen on that. And I think. And it's fascinating times at the moment, isn't it? And it's like when the Black Lives Matters stuff happened, there was there was counter argument that all lives matters. And then with that, the the murder of that girl in Clapham recently, yeah, there's the kind of counter argument that is like, um, we shouldn't talk about the the issues that are facing women. And I think just as a white man, the one thing that I think is that sometimes you do have to highlight an issue, don't you? Because mm. I agree it's more nuanced than going female here or male here and all this kind of stuff but I think there is a time and a place to to highlight an issue because the amount of women that I know that have shared stories stories and that I've that I just didn't know about like the whole key thing have you seen everyone talking about how women regularly carry a key in their hands when they're walking home late at night like I just did not know that but I think it's important that everyone knows that so I mean, what's your view? I know we again we're slightly going off topic, but I think it's so relevant at the moment. It is. I think that I think it's really, really important um, that we talk about it. Um, I think the thing that I want to discourage is um, this kind of shouting on social media, like the shouting in reality, but shouting on social media at men, because I think that completely, you know, nobody ever won an argument by shouting so um, about anything. So I think we need to stop again, sort of pitting this male against female and actually encourage a conversation. It needs to be a discourse. It, men need to be allowed to ask those questions. Cause like you say, you didn't know that and that's fine. You know, why would you know that? It's not something that you've had to do, but I think we need to encourage those conversations. We need to encourage the questions. So men are able to ask the questions and go, well, kind of tell me what that's like, or tell yeah. me the things that you have to do that make you, you know, to make yourself feel safe on the streets. Tell me about the things that men do that make you feel unsafe that we probably don't realize that we are doing. So I think we need to allow that conversation to happen. You know, it's exactly the same thing as with the Black Lives Matter stuff. You know, let's not just label somebody a racist and shut down the conversation. Let's actually go, well, why do you have that point of view and allow the questions to emerge so that we can answer them in a calm and rational way. This kind of thing that I've seen a little bit on social media um, you know, by women about, like I said, this sort of shouting at men in terms of you're a problem, you're an issue. You're not going to engage anybody in that. And and I think I, I saw a wonderful piece um, uh, that, that's happened in the last few days in, in response to the Sarah Everard situation um, where there was a chap who ended up on the BBC. I think he was called Chris Hemingway. Fantastic clip on YouTube where he went on and talked from a male perspective about we need to sort of own this issue. And yeah. he'd even gone as far with the BBC of 
um, getting them to change, you know, like the the ticker tape that sits underneath somebody, um, you know, the, the title. And he said, I've asked them to change it because he said, when I arrived, it said like, you know, women feeling unsafe. And he said, I've made it them change it to male violence against women because we yeah. need to put men at the center of the problem rather than women sort of trying to, you know, bash men over the head by going, you're a problem, you need to fix it. So yeah. I do think there's a sense of we need to do things that encourage the dialogue and don't just shut it down. Yeah, and t- and even even back to schools, isn't it? Like some of the good stuff I think I've read is that we need to ed- educate young boys. And mm. as someone who has a daughter, the amount of t- the conversations where I have to, to have, where and this is just very basic school level, this this boy wants to kiss me, but I don't want to, um, and the sort of stuff like, oh, that 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 boy's chasing you because he likes you, and it's like do you think more of these conversations need to be had in schools at an early age where as groups everyone needs to sit down and say look this is this is important that we do this in these ways because a lot of it gets like just sort of become as a father I'm made to feel like oh I would if I went to the school to talk about these things it would feel like I was complaining or whatever but it feels to me like these are conversations that need to be had. Definitely. And I think that there's a couple of things for me there. Um, you know, research shows that pretty much our beliefs are set by the time we're seven. Mm. So it's no point turning up at 17 and trying to persuade, you know, in this example, boys to treat girls differently. They've learned that back in primary school. So absolutely we do. I think that would be my first thing. Um, I think my second thing would be around the fact that usually are you know and and for understandable reasons but usually our approach is to kind of protect children so we don't talk about the issues or we try and protect them from it and actually we we just make them more vulnerable of course we have to talk about things in an age-appropriate way of course it's not about saying to them like the world's a terrible place and it's really scary but we need to sort of take the fear out by having the open dialogue and whether that's at home if that's appropriate whether that's at school um if that can be properly um, handled and facilitated I think it's a great opportunity to talk to you know uh, children you know across the spectrum all ages you know about issues because that's when that's when they're most open-minded and I think that's when you can influence and I think it's really interesting because I, I actually watched last night um, the documentary that um, Roman Kemp did about mental health and suicide yeah, for I'd young like men and it was absolutely brilliant um but one of the things that he did is he went and observed a class in a school where they actually just had boys i think it was predominantly in this particular class and they were talking to them about mental health and depression and these boys were i don't know say eight or nine years old they were in primary school and he said afterwards god i was really shocked that it was kind of okay to talk about this stuff with him he said but wow i was so impressed by their ability to articulate what these things were and talk openly yeah. about it. And again, that's a completely different issue again, but it demonstrates that children do have the capacity to talk about these issues. And if we don't talk about them, they're just left worrying um, yeah. with an, an ill-informed. So I, I think it's I think it's fine to talk about these things. Like I said, as long as you do it in an age-appropriate way, but yeah. actually to the, the main bit of that education is it's okay to talk about stuff. Yeah. It's not even just the stuff itself. It's the fact that it's okay to talk about stuff and it's okay to talk about your feelings about yeah. things. 
and I, I do think there's a there's a tox there is a toxic masculinity thing there because even in that scenario when my daughter was born I fell into that like that scene from Bad Boys 2 if anyone's watched it where like Will Smith and the other guys uh, young guys coming to take their daughter out his daughter out and they're getting their guns out and they're all this kind of stuff and it's like it's presented in a funny way but the first time that I that that I found out that my daughter had a boyfriend like it's not really even a boyfriend at that age but I I fell into the trap of saying that I was annoyed but then I read some some guys saying the best thing that you can do is just not be the crazy dad that uh, and just teach your daughter to have confidence. And f for a little while, she didn't tell me stuff. So all that happened by being annoyed is that she stopped telling me stuff. Yeah. Now I've trained myself to pretend that I'm cool with it. Now <laughs> she tells me everything. But yeah. that means that I'm in a better position to have a conversation with her as opposed to what might have been better for me, which is to pretend that girls and boys at seven and eight don't talk about relationships the, the facts is they do mm. and and they do they very much do and again there's a there's a wonderful thing that i watched once um uh, online of a woman uh who's gone on and sort of done incredible things in her in her life but also sort of had some you know at times some difficult um times as well but she tells a story of how um her father took her out on her first date and he didn't tell her that it was her first date, but he took her out and they got dressed up and they went out to dinner and he opened the car door for her and he sort of <laughs> treated her really, really well. And when she came back, you know, um, they stood on the doorstep and he, he told her that was your first ever date. And he said, and what I want to tell you is I want you to be treated like that with that kind mm. of respect and that kind of discussion and dialogue and, and, and you being important and whatever every time you go on a date because that yeah. is the standard by which i want you to expect that men will treat you yeah and i thought it was a really powerful story I love that. um because it is absolutely then about that educating going here is the standard and don't let yourself um you know fall below that standard don't let anybody treat you anything other than in this way um and i thought that was the most that. amazing amazing approach I love that. We go, we're going off tangent here, Caroline, but I was even thinking this last night. I was thinking to myself that I know this is a really broad statement. You know how, obviously, traditionally, a married male and a, mar a married male and female have children. Mm. I, was th I almost got to the point in my head last night, I was thinking, and I wouldn't, I'm not recommending that this happens, that, that people in love should not be allowed to have children. And the reason I was, I was thinking about when you found a business and I was thinking about my, my business partner, Chris, and I was thinking we've been in business um, together for like 12, 13 years. But as a team, we're a good team. So I was thinking to myself, it's a random thing for I was thinking, would we be better at having children to get? Would I be better at having children with my business partner than I would my wife? Because, <laughs> because we know in the data how damaging, for example, a divorce can be um, mm. for children. Um, but but obviously, if you need to get divorced, then that's the right thing to do. Yeah. But, but then I suddenly started thinking, well, actually, is it better for people who are not romantically involved to to, to team up to have children? <laughs> because then you just you've got a shared vision of everything. And then I thought, my bright, what is got, this lockdown has gone too on too <laughs> yeah. long. But do you, but I, it was, I was thinking about what you were saying. And have you got anything to add to that other than have you gone crazy, Matt? Um, no, I just would really like you to bring your wife into the room and uh, like involve her in this conversation. I'd, love, I'd actually love to hear her point of view about that. Would you be better off of having had a child with 
with your business partner than with her. I, I would love to hear her opinion. So this, I don't know if subconsciously this was leading me into my next question about your original book. Yes. <laughs> so tell us about, tell us about, tell us about your first book, Carolyn. Yeah, so All the Twats I Met Along the Way is um, a memoir. Um, it takes from, um, it touches a little bit on my childhood, but it's sort of about my mid-teens up until um, the middle of 2018 when my life imploded quite spectacularly. So within the space of 10 days, um, I was uh, being forced out of a job that I absolutely loved um because of something that my boss did and said and wrote down um and so I was being forced out of that job which was absolutely devastating for me so I loved it and I loved my team and I'd worked very hard at it and um and then my partner then abruptly told me that um when our house sale completed that the relationship was over um and that I would never see his children again which I he'd very much encouraged me to be to co-parent and be a step-parent um to those children so in the space of 10 days I lost um my job I lost my home I lost my relationship and I lost my family um essentially in terms of those stepchildren um I couldn't have children on my own so that's sort of part of my my story so um so my entire world imploded and um all the twats I met along the way was really about the fact that it totally forced me to press the reset button on on me um, as an individual and what I then started to do was to look back and go how did I end up here and really a lot of the relationships that I'd had in my life had been very toxic um, some of those relationships had been at work but it was very much in our personal life so I'd had a very successful corporate career I'd worked for um, like some of the world's largest employers. What's, um, um, Carolyn, what's your definition of toxic? I'd just like to just to, to zoom in on that a little bit. In terms of relationships? Yeah, it's quite a widely used thing, isn't it? We, I mean, we mm. had an event, to to toxic workplaces, but when you use it, what do you mean by it? So, so in my personal life, um, they'd been very controlling, um, very manipulative, um, abusive. So in one of the scenarios, it was um, sexually abusive. In the, the last relationship that, um, that fell in in 2018, it was emotionally abusive, um, which was, for me, um, having experienced both sides of it just as, as um, difficult and, and on the same scale as, as the, the physical abuse um, that I'd suffered previously. So... Um, yeah, very manipulative, um, controlling, um, you know, gaslighting, made to feel like you don't have a voice. Um, I think in the workplace, I would say very aggressive, um, very, those sort of very masculine behaviours. Um, not always, I have to say, by males. Um, women can do masculine behaviours too. Um, and, you know, very much... Um, yeah, trying to be sort of marginalised and sidelined, particularly mm. for speaking up. So in my description of myself, I would always say I was always a little bit in the workplace, like the grit in the oyster. You know, I had a really strong moral compass. I was prepared to stand forward and, and go, this this behaviour or this this situation that you're in is, is not right, um, mm. but very much punished for having that voice. Where did your, Carolyn, where did your moral compass come from? Where did you, how did you, you say it's strong? How did, where's that come from? Your parents or where you've grown up? What's the? Um, I think, I think there's probably two key places. I think one very much so my parents, you know, going back to the idea of your sort of beliefs and values are set by the age of seven. I think that um, very much coming from that. Um, I think the other place as well is actually my first 
my first boss in what I would class as my sort of proper job. Obviously, I had sort of Saturday jobs and whatever. But in my first sort of proper HR job, I had a line manager there who was one of only two really amazing leaders that I've ever had, which I've had an awful lot of leaders. So I think that says an awful lot about the fact that we've got a real leadership crisis, I think, um, nationally and globally. But my first ever boss was an absolute exemplar of the way in which you should conduct yourself, the way in which you should treat your employees, the way in which you should behave. And I think that really, in a workplace setting, I think really cemented that kind of workplace integrity and moral compass. I think my mm. parents did it on a on a personal basis. Karen, I'm just going to ask you for two bits of really succinct advice mm. um, to try and get the answers down to each one into about two to three sentences, because I think there's going to be a lot of people listening that may be in either type of toxic relationship. So we'll start with personal first. Mm. If someone's listening and they resonate with the, the situation that you were in, do you, can you be as succinct to think in two to three sentences, what would you do if you were them now? Like, is, mm. is there anything they can do? Yes. The first one is believe yourself. If it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't right. Because what these people try to do is make you doubt your sanity or doubt your, you know, what, what you believe in. So I think firstly, like most of us, not everyone, but most people grow up knowing the difference between right and wrong. If it feels wrong, if it doesn't feel quite right, whatever, however that is, believe yourself. The second yeah. one in, in relation to that then is go and speak to somebody. Because we, we, again, a lot of these sort of perpetrators make you feel like you're entirely on your own. You're completely mad and you're entirely by yourself. You absolutely are not. You do not, sadly, have to scratch the surface very far to find somebody else that's been through something similar to you had. Yeah. have. So go and find somebody to speak to. You know, people can contact me if they want to, you know, but yeah. go and find somebody that you trust and say it out loud and yeah. you, know, you you will be believed and then let's move into the workplace you you feel like you're in a, a toxic relationship team something there what, what, same advice or slightly different um i think that there are elements of the same advice um in terms of believing it i think the the difference in the workplace is think about how much just being in that place really matters and what i mean by that is as much as again, and often the perpetrators again sort of make you feel like, you know, there's no other options and you're useless and you're rubbish and nobody else will ever employ you and all of that stuff, they will. And we spend an awful lot of our time at work. And if that place is making you feel down and and devalued and, and tearing down your confidence, start building your escape tunnel, leave, because life is too short and we do not have to just put up with it's just rubbish here and I just yeah. have to keep my head down and get through it. Um, it's not worth it and, yeah. and start building that escape tunnel because there are routes out. Yeah, thanks, Karen. The only thing that I wanted to add to that to anyone listening is is to not worry about your blooming CV. I know oh, people, yeah. I get a lot of messages on that particular part because of the content I post and people are like, what, what, what will I say to the next company when they interviewed me about why I left? And I would say, if you can't explain exactly what happened, then the new company isn't where you want to go. So if you if you don't feel comfortable to go, do you know what? I'd worked in this company for five years and I realized in the last two years I was in a toxic relationship where I was being bullied um, and gaslighted at work. Then then, then the new company that's interviewing you is, is living in la-la land as well. So. Yeah. 
And that's, that's just all I wanted to add because it's such good advice. Um, Karen, one of the, the key points that when we had our first chat, you said to me something like, did you notice that everyone talks about leadership, but no one talks about followership? And I was like, well, I don't even know what you're talking about. I've never heard of this. <laughs> um, and you said, like, if you go and Google it, there's loads on leadership, but nothing on followership. Um, and then you you gave me the example that has just stayed in my head, which is Hitler never killed anyone. Hitler never personally killed someone. And, mm. and it was like, wow, this is a massive learning and wake up call for me. Um, can you take us through what followership is and also better explain the Hitler <laughs> point <laughs> to me? Yeah, so um, I, I sort of studied followership um, as part of a, a master's degree that I did. And I ended up, um, yeah, I was massively interested in leadership. And um, I was looking at something called the dark triad um, of leadership, um, which, again, people can, can Google. But um, the dark triad of leadership, um, in a nutshell, um, is Machiavellianism, um, psychopathy psychopathy um, can never say that one and narcissism so those are the three elements of the of the dark triad of leadership um and i started looking at those um, not least because of my hr background and some of what i said about toxic leadership um and was sort of interested in those and i then became fascinated about well is there an equivalent in relation to followers so we you know like you say you google leadership there's millions of books on it and theories and whatever else and yet the majority of people are a follower and yet there's hardly anything about that huge massive Very fascinating and what were those three those three elements again please just share them oh, this so is not so you have to pronounce the one that you find yeah, no so it's basically psychopaths yeah um uh machiavellianism and narcissism yeah uh, so, so that's basically the the dark triad of leadership, which and, I, and it's a per, it's a perfect storm, is it, when those the trio come together? I well, it is, but you can you can have somebody that's any one of those, but obviously yeah. in a in a particular workplace, then you might have more than one of those um, existing. So, um, and interesting, there are as a percentage point of view more psychopaths at the top of organisations than there are um, anywhere else, um, which is which is interesting. So. Um, so yeah, so one of the situations I, I was in in a workplace, I have to say, um, one of um, one of the leaders um, was was showed Machiavellian traits. Um, another one of the leaders, and they were like a double act, was a psychopath, without a shadow of a doubt. And what was interesting, so th this was the, the the perfect storm of of the, the implosion of my we, life. What, we, um, what is a psychopath, Carolyn? Just so, what, what do you, what do you see? Uh, yeah what, what is because it gets overused doesn't it like what yeah is it? it does so psychopaths you know are your typical bully um but they tend to be very unpredictable they fail to take responsibility um that's one of the things that always somebody else's fault is they always will have a story about how something that's gone on was about somebody else and not about them so they very much kind of lack emotions and they don't perceive any consequences for the things that they do um and they are they tend to be very intolerant and they they create conflict so they're usually at the hub of any conflict but they're not taking any responsibility for it and sort of going yes it's all about these other people because it's they're yeah. all rubbish yeah. um so that's your typical sort of psychopath um with um machiavellians they're much more overt so they will they will sort of openly be cruel um but very much 
they see that cruelty as a strategic weapon. So they will say the end justifies the means. I might be being a complete bastard in the process, but look how we've all ended up getting our bonus because like the end justifies the means. Um, so they very much, they're much more based in reality um, than a, the psychopath is. Um, but, you know, they, they will, so they'll be much more overt about it, but they'll very much say, well, yeah, you know, it's, it's fine that I treat you in this way in the middle because like we all do really well out of it in the end. Yeah. Um, and then a narcissist. So when I talked about kind of my life imploding, like I said, I, I was working for two people. Um, one was a psychopath, one was a, a Machiavellian um, character. And then the, the abusive relationship I was in at home um, was actually a narcissist. So for me in my, in my one, I had the perfect storm of I had all three of them in my world at the same time. Um, but narcissists, again, can exist at work. They're very grandiose. So very much your thing, you talk about arrogance and confident versus confidence. They will talk yeah. very much about themselves. Um, they tend to retaliate. Um, so if you do anything and you speak up and whatever, they will retaliate. They're very self-deceptive. So they do mm. not see the impact that they have. A Machiavellian, on the other hand, knows that they're cruel. Um, but a, a narcissist doesn't. And they do it much more subversively. Um they do have emotions. So whereas a psychopath lacks emotion, narcissists do have emotions, but those emotions are very much based around them. This is how I feel about it. This is sort of how uh, I am. Um, they have very low trust in others. Now, the interesting thing with a narcissist is we think a narcissist loves themselves. Actually, the reason a narcissist is how they are is because of a deep loathing of themselves. Mm, so they do this whole I'm amazing and you know this this sort of pseudo confidence because underneath it there's a deep self-loathing that makes them gives them the need to behave in that way and whilst whilst we're on it Carolyn where does where do sociopaths fit into this um so I mean sociopaths are sort of where they are in relation to, to psychopaths really um so um, you know, psychopaths sort of sit there in a in a workplace context. Context sociopaths are just more out in the in the general public. So it's the same sort of traits, but they're yeah. just out more in society in general as opposed to sort of in yeah. the workplace or or in a relationship with you. So, okay. but yes, yeah, sort of traits. So that's what I started to study, and then what I wanted to understand is well, okay, there's all these followers out there. So the majority of people are followers. Is there the same? sort of um you know the uh, same sort of model um for for followers do they fall into particular categories because we treat followers like an amorphous mass yeah but surely there must be different types of followers um yeah. so that's how i got into it and back to your point about the quotes you know i started reading about this and one of the quotes that, that sits at the beginning of the thesis that i wrote um is that europe's jews were massacred by hitler's followers um, which hugely resonated with me. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Let's yeah. go and find out a bit more about followers and followership. Yeah. Um, and essentially, you know, what I what I found is that there are different types of followers um, out there. So, um, you know, there's for me, um, I developed a particular model um, from all of my research where there's there's five different types of followers. Um, and for three out of those five types, they have both good and bad traits. Yeah. Um, which I, I class as ethical and unethical. Um, I won't go into all the background of that because I think we broadly understand what that means. Um, so three out of the five types, there were um, both good and bad possibilities within those types yeah. of followers. For two of the types, there was only bad. There was only yeah. unethical. So we can have followers that are as bad as those leadership types yeah. that I talked about. And I think it's 
I guess the conversation we had was it's really important that we talk about them rather than treat mm. them as an amorphous mass, not least because thanks to lockdown and home working and remote working and all of those things, we now need to treat our people, the people that we lead in a very different way because we now need to see them as sort of holistically rounded individuals with both work and home stuff. And we need to start treating people um, in a more individualistic way. And I think in order to do that, we sort of need to understand a little bit more about where they are in that follower model um, when we're treating them that way. So Carolyn, that, that, this is where I'm gonna ask you for some live free consultancy um, <laughs> for the audience um, on their behalf, which is um, a lot of people who listen to this particular podcast are, are HR professionals. Mm. Um, and I know you, you, you work with HR professionals. One of the worrying things that we see in our data and quite often, uh, just a couple of bits of data for you, um, that one of the unhappiest groups in, in job titles in our data is HR professionals. Yeah. Um, and secondly, which I didn't mention on the prequel, we do drivers of analysis. So we do we are our technology does ha happiness drivers. Right. So we, we know that the drivers of happiness changes by different job titles. And for HR people, impact. If they don't feel that their work is having an impact, you'd think that was the same for everyone, but it's not. Each each sector has different things, and it may, I'm sure it has something to do why people get into HR. But if people if HR professionals don't feel their work is having an impact, their happiness slides, and we know that happiness impacts performance. So I just wanted to set that scene, and I know this is what you do on a day to day, Carolyn. Mm. Um, how how can you help? How can we help? How, how can we help the HR professionals? Um. First and foremost, like a lot of the work that I end up doing is around um, prioritization. And the bit that I find more than anything else with HR professionals for, for a lot of the reasons that they get into HR is that they put themselves at the bottom of their list. So they don't look after themselves first and foremost. Now, a lot of the work that I do um, in my business is all about trying to tip that on its head and saying it's absolutely that thing that if you get into a boat or you're on a plane, it's that you need to put on your life vest before helping others. You cannot help anybody if you are drowning. You will never rescue them. Um, and it's exactly that, that thing. So um, first and foremost, I would say as an HR person, you need to, need to, need to, must, must, must prioritize looking after you. So looking mm -hmm. at your mental health, your emotional health, your physical health, because so much of what I see, and particularly on the back of the pandemic and lockdown, is HR people who are absolutely burnt out, stressed out, worn out at the end of their tether. And you will never be able to really have an impact if you're constantly rushed if you're constantly sort of turning up for a meeting unprepared and rushing from one thing to another probably because somebody stopped you in the corridor in the way and said can I just have a moment and our inclination particularly as HR people is to go oh yes that's okay when you already know you're late and you're already you know all of those things so I think first and foremost it's about trying to flip some of those behaviors on their heads um, because I think you'll never have an impact if you look out of control and a lot of the HR people I come across are out of control at the moment Carolyn, um, I noticed one of the things I notice on on this in this area is that sports professionals understand this better. Which is, if you've got a football match on a Saturday, you you, you plan your week so that your peak performance coming is coming in mm. for a Saturday, so you're not overtraining the day before and tired. 
Yeah. And it, I've, I've kind of learned that the hard way myself. So if I've got a board meeting coming up, I know that that's where I, I know that I, I know that if I haven't been for a run or haven't had sleep, sleep, I could take a, a question the wrong way or whatever, mm. if I'm not in the right state of mind. So I, I feel like when I'm in a meeting, I want to feel like I'm surfing. I'm in a good place. Everything's just coming at me. It's all waves and so on. So I'm conscious now to make sure that I arrive at the, the big points in, in the right way why why do we find it so hard in in work to look at the world like that where it's almost the other way around isn't it you mm. you work yourself to the bone and then turn up for that big meeting in a yeah. complete and, and sometimes people say that's good because oh look <laughs> that person what what's where why don't we get that because i i do think that it's sort of a cultural thing and a mentality so we we celebrate busyness don't we we celebrate that just generally in in I think in in the workplace we do that you know we talk about um you know I've been in so many talent review meetings and I'm sure there's lots of HR people who will feel the same is that you sit in those talent review meetings and the things that we celebrate and go yeah let's get them promoted or let's shift them up a grade or let's give them more responsibility all because they work really hard like they're always yeah. in the first thing in the morning they're the last ones at night they come in and they work on the weekends and we celebrate that kind of behavior and we see it as the way it's like to get on and we don't understand the difference of like you say the person who actually is much more calm and in control and absolutely gets their work done um, <laughs> and isn't hugely stressed out yeah for some reason they don't get on do they they don't sort yeah. of progress in the same way because well, they... they're perceived as lazy or not bothered um so we need to start shifting some of that mindset and going well actually we need to be better at being those role models but in society in general we see busyness burnt outness you know it's like oh how are you oh my god i'm so busy yeah like we think it's a badge of honor that we wear yeah. and we need to stop doing that so do you can you imagine a day when when HR professionals are sitting in the talent meeting saying, do you know what we need to promote that person? They've 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 got everything done in one day this week and they've and they spent four days four days surfing. Yeah, I I would love us to get to that that situation. Um I think it's gonna take a very long time. I think it's gonna take a real shift, but um, I do, you know, you, you, you see it, don't you, again, with some of the things that the more negative things that have come out again from remote working is, you know, at the rise in, in monitoring software. Mm, um, you know, I want to out. see that, and it, that completely freaks me out too. So yes, I would love to see that situation where we're going, you know, there's, there's the campaign, isn't there, in terms of the four day working week and um, all of those things. So yes, uh, some of it is a little bit goes together. Um, so the, some of the stuff we talked about at the start about that sort of toxic masculinity and that sort of difference between men and women and how they get treated is, particularly in the workplace, is then, again, this badge of honour that we wear, I, I see it a lot with guys, you know, it's a lot of it is like, you know, I've worked really hard and I've been here all hours and, you know, I was up until midnight and I only need four hours sleep and I can function you know, perfectly well. And it's like, really? Um you know, I, I think that we need to look at that again, because some of those more, it doesn't have to be women, you know, some of the female traits that, that science demonstrates makes a better leader, that yeah. is about empathy, is about listening, some of those more, those quieter, calmer traits. Um, often, um, you know, women are better at delegating, um, or the female traits are better at delegating. We need to bring those much more to the surface and those need to be the basis on which we recruit, um, we develop and we promote people in the business rather than 
the more masculine traits, like I said, it's not always exclusive to men, but the more masculine traits, which are about this sort of bullish, you know, busyness um, that we yes. think is positive. Callum, we've got two minutes. Um, I had a rumour that you're 80%, well, it wasn't a rumour you told me, but <laughs> I had a rumour that you're 80% through your new book. What's, yeah. um, what's this new book about? Yeah, so um, so probably first and foremost, so anybody that gets into um, all the twats I met along the way will see that actually... <laughs> I just love it. I know I shouldn't laugh every time I hear it, but it makes me, the title makes me happy. So there's another two books in the Twats trilogy, um, but it's now, as it's now known. So the second book is Detwat Your Life, which is my journey yeah. out of my dark place um, and to where I am today. And that, that is that, can we get that now? Is that live out there? Is that in the world? Uh, Detwat Your Life? No, yeah. it's not. The that's, 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 that's the 80% center. No, that's a different one. So there's a there's a Twats trilogy. So all the Twats I met along the way is the first one. Detwat Your Life will be coming um, probably published ne next year. Um, the yeah. last one is Twats at Work. So that po possibly will resonate with some of your, your audience in terms of that's all about my sort of corporate life. But I'm yeah. writing a different book at the moment. So it's my second book. It just happens to not be the second book of the trilogy. Um, right. But I'm writing an e-book at the moment, which will be out in May. And um, it's called Redefining Selfish, A Woman's Guide to a Guilt-Free Life. So it's all about how we need to take better care of ourselves. We need to, you know, like I said, put our life vest on um, before trying to rescue others and see that as a positive thing and actually see that how how by being a bit more selfish with ourselves, we can actually better serve those people that we either work for or we love or we care for. Because if we're a better version of ourselves, i.e. less stressed out, less burnt out, less tired, let's face it, less irritable um, as a result of having looked after ourselves and, and shown ourselves a bit of self-care, then actually we can better do what we want to do, which is is care for those people around us. Wow. Um, Carolyn, we need to we need to finish, but I just want to say two things on the final point to bring the two notes up, that we know that making other people makes you happy. Mm. Um, so one of the self, on the selfish point, I'd recommend everyone if they want to be selfish is to look after themselves and make other people happy. Mm. Um, and finally, you're just an amazing human being, Carolyn. Thank you so much for coming on. I wish we had four hours to do this. But, <laughs> yeah. um, it's brilliant. I've just learned so much and, and, and thank you for your time. No, thank you too.